Palm Springs is an ideal place if you are someone who is able to work remotely, either full-time or part-time, you can live and work here with easy access to San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and now with all these direct flights out of Palm Springs International, you can fly nonstop to Oakland. You can fly nonstop to Austin, another tech hub. During the season, you can fly to New York. So Palm Springs is very much not just a tourism economy, and uh, I think that's gonna be good for all concerned. This is the Public Record Podcast, a presentation of the Public Record, the Coachella Valley's Business News Weekly. On this edition, my guest is David Perry, CEO of David Perry & Associates, with offices in San Francisco and Palm Springs. David's business is telling his clients' stories through a wide variety of public relations and social marketing services. And recently, David has extended his storytelling skills into the world of fiction with the release of an elegant, twisty thriller called Upon This Rock. And that's what's coming up on the Public Record Podcast. I'm managing editor Ken Allen, and for this podcast, I met up with David on the patio of the V Wine Lounge in Palm Springs. We began the conversation talking about his storytelling agency. Here in Palm Springs in the desert, we have several clients. We just worked on, along with Jeffrey Norman, who's the director of marketing and communications for the McCallum Theater, which is the Kennedy Center of the desert, as you were, spectacular theater. It's going to be an incredible season, and we helped them a little bit on the PR for the opening. We have another theater client here, Desart Performs, esteemed, award-winning nonprofit theater, really, really a creative company. Uh, Michael Shaw and Clark Duggar run it really extraordinary theater and they're coming back they will have a season uh, I know some some things that I could tell you but I'd get in trouble with my client if I did but they have some exciting news coming up then uh, Asia SF Palm Springs an incredible supper club here in the desert known for the ladies of Asia SF transgender performers and most recently a client we're really really excited about the purple room and they are now our client we've been helping them as they say continue the applause they had an incredibly successful GoFundMe campaign launched by one of their supporters, longtime journalist Sue Cameron, and they have kept themselves going because Michael Holmes, the owner of the Purple Room, he kept all his employees paid during COVID. So we're proud to represent them. Uh, we've done uh, a good deal of, of nonprofit work here and some pro bono work. The, the Palm Springs in the desert is just beautiful and unique and having lived in San Francisco for 36 years and loved it and still have many clients there and many friends and colleagues the desert is different is beautiful in a different way it doesn't have the fog and the the mist of San Francisco but it has this incredible light like you can see now and the the view of the mountains and for working remotely as we've all learned to do during COVID and one hour flight to San Francisco. I call Alaska Airlines my Muni. I hop yeah. on Alaska at 7 a.m. and at 8.30 I'm at SFO. You think the COVID experience where people are working from home will expand opportunities here? Would this be kind of a live work space for people to telecommute over the internet? The answer is yes. Um, we know of three couples already who during COVID said, you know what, we've realized we can work remotely 
they had been in San Francisco for a while and they and they were getting older and they realized we wanted some place with more space, a little warmer. Boom, Palm Springs. When we first moved here, people from San Francisco, and I say this as someone who adores San Francisco and considered myself a bit of a San Francisco snob, they would say, oh, you're moving to Palm Springs. My goodness, you'll, how can you give up San Francisco? And now they're all asking us for realtors. Oh. So um, I think Palm Springs is ideally suited to be a work remotely hub. For all the reasons I just said, also you've got incredible infrastructure here great telecommunications, you have space, and you have the ability to recreate yourself. A lot of people have come to the desert over the years and recreated themselves. Tell me about your work in uh, the international market. I was surprised to see you doing work in uh, China, for example. Do you speak Mandarin? My husband, Alfredo, speaks five languages. Wow. I definitely married up. I officially speak two. I got my Spanish citizenship, got my Spanish passport, which means I passed the five-hour test. Alfredo's language test to become a U.S. citizen was five minutes. I just don't think that's fair. But anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, I, but I got it. So officially I speak two, but Alfredo speaks five. And he, I would say the sixth, he studied Mandarin for three years because there was a period there of five years where we were in China nine times. We did uh, PR and media for a couple of large uh, Chinese companies that moved to San Francisco specifically. Uh, bank of Communications, the largest bank in Shanghai, fourth biggest bank in China. We did the opening of Suning's office in California. Suning is quote unquote the Sears or Kmart of China. And then we had several smaller companies, business people that would come to San Francisco looking for opportunities and we would play business connector. And I was on the board of China SF, which is now Global SF, whose mission is to specifically grow business connections between San Francisco and China. We're in a weird China period now. Yeah. Um, I find that unfortunate. Yeah. I'm a great believer in citizen diplomacy. I'm, my husband and I are both on the Cork, Ireland, San Francisco Sister City Committee. We've worked extensively with the Shanghai San Francisco Sister City Committee, the oldest of San Francisco's uh, sister cities. San Francisco actually had a relationship with China before the United States did. Uh, now Senator, then Mayor Dianne Feinstein brokered that. And of course there is a huge connection between China specifically, but Asia in general in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. The large Asian community. Huge, 40 to 45% of San Francisco is of Asian e extraction. And for instance, a lot of people don't realize the transcontinental railway was built mainly by Chinese oh, workers. Right. Yeah. Of course, when you see the famous picture of the gold spike being driven in Provo, Utah, it's only white guys. Uh, so Chinese have been written out of US history. And uh, the Chinese diaspora created what we now know as modern San Francisco and the diversity we have there in food and culture and education. So yeah, I'm, I am someone who has great respect for the Chinese people. I have real problems with the Chinese government, but I've also, <laughs> I've also had problems with my government in, yeah. uh, in years past. Yeah. Uh, so I, I believe that this current uh, difficulty between the U.S. and China will be overcome because we need each other. Yeah. China is one-fourth of the world's populations. It can't be ignored. So I'm hoping that once again we'll be able to do some business with China because I think there are a lot of opportunities there, both economically and culturally. Well, if China went away, we wouldn't have any iPhones. Isn't that the truth? And, thank, and, and don't, don't be taking away my iPhone. Where is it? I just had it there a few minutes oh, ago. It's here somewhere. It? No, it's inside. I don't oh. think it was going to steal okay. it. Okay. 
You know, one of the projects we're working on right now is something I'm very excited about because we have worked with seven mayoral administrations of San Francisco doing community affairs on various projects, whether it was the running of the Olympic torch, the Shanghai Expo in 2010. We've done public safety campaigns, whether it was don't drink too much on New Year's and don't party too much on Halloween. We, we really love working with the city and county of San Francisco to boost whatever they're doing, but also promote things that are good for the whole city. And right now we're working on something that we have branded and are promoting this whole summer of 2021, which I think will continue on, SF Wednesdays. Very easy to remember, sfwednesdaysplural.com. And over a series of Wednesdays for the whole summer, July, August, September, and into October, there will be live entertainment downtown. Free! Uh, so. The stage at Union Square might have some dancers. The stage at Mechanics Plaza might have a singer. Yerba Buena Gardens might have some ballet. And the idea is to bring people back into the center city. Because we're in a period where people are reimagining things. And a few months ago, when we were all talking about this miasma we're coming out of, it was like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to San Francisco? Well, I moved to San Francisco in 1986. Then it was all about AIDS, and the city was never going to recover. And then there was a 1989 earthquake, and I was in the box office for that, and part of the ceiling fell behind me, and oh my goodness, <laughs> the, the, the city is never going to come back. And then there was the dot-com boom and bust, one, two, and three. And then there was this thing called COVID. And all last summer, there were these articles about, oh, the demise of San Francisco, and no one's coming back, and I didn't read many of them. Because I've always said betting against San Francisco is not a smart bet. There's a reason that the motto of San Francisco is the phoenix, the mythical bird rising from its own ashes. And there's a reason that the motto for San Francisco is the city that knows how. Given to the city by then President Taft when he opened the Pan Pacific Exposition, which of course to mark the opening of the Panama Canal, which let's be frank, was basically to connect New York City ships with ships in San Francisco. So San Francisco is undergoing one of its perennial renaissances, as it were, expanding into whatever this new, new world is. And I'm very optimistic about San Francisco, and that's not just me being a booster. That's because I've lived through several catastrophes that everyone, especially the East Coast media, all deference to my home, coast, always love to say San Francisco's never coming back, and they're always wrong. Well, with the growing demand for post-COVID travel, San Francisco's always rated like in the top five destinations in the U.S., and often number one, yeah. even, even despite New York, uh, still they want to come to San Francisco because it's very European, you know. Absolutely. And it's very attractive, and it's, it's big with the Asian communities because it's a shorter flight than getting to New York. Absolutely. You know, Condé Nast Traveler, year after year, right. says San Francisco is the number one destination. Love you, New York. Love you, Big Apple. But here's the thing about San Francisco. San Francisco has an approachable size. It when, does. Uh, it does. True. When, when uh, my husband's family came to visit us several years ago for the first time from Spain, one of their first reactions was, oh my God, we thought San Francisco was much bigger. Mm. I mean, it always looks bigger in movies like The Rock or The Streets of San Francisco or Planet of the Apes. San Francisco has always punched above its weight. You know, San Francisco is barely a million people. But you don't talk of San Francisco in the same category as, nothing against it, 
an Austin or a San Jose or some of these other cities, you always talk about it in the same league as New York, right. Chicago, Los Angeles, but it's much smaller. And your point about it being European is very true. And another silver lining that's come out of COVID that's not going away are these outdoor cafes. A lot of restaurants, I was just there last week, I'm back and forth between Palm Springs and San Francisco, and a number of these parklets, quote unquote, that came about because of COVID, people like. They like sitting out in terraces. They like this kind of notion of being part of the street. And I think part of that is also generational. Uh, you see a lot of young people who aren't as tied to old ways of doing things. And I think that's really good for San Francisco. I'm very hopeful. San Francisco strikes me as kind of a small town oh. feel because you have, even though it's a fairly large area, you know, metro-sized area, not as big as L.A., of course, but you also have the neighborhoods that have their own little street fairs throughout the year that kind of compartmentalize and make it feel more cozy and inviting than, say, a New York would be with its kind of endless vastness, abyss kind of uh, appearance. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a very astute observation. You clearly know San Francisco well. San Francisco has often been called a city of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. The difference between the neighborhoods of, say, San Francisco and New York is physical distance. So if you're in the Castro, the quote-unquote gay neighborhood, uh, a couple blocks you're going to run into the Western Edition mm -hmm. and the Jazz District, or you're going to run into the Mission. They are close. And one of the things that came out of COVID was, since people were working at home and not dining out downtown in the financial district, they were dining out or getting out into the neighborhoods. The neighborhoods in San Francisco right now are bustling. They're bustling. And I think that's something that's going to, to stick. These neighborhoods have realized even more than they did before, their potential to be the face of San Francisco. I assume the street fairs went away during COVID though, right? They did. Uh, the, one of the first ones that's coming back, I'm happy to say, because it was my literally first day in San Francisco, October 1st, 1986. This kid from Richmond, Virginia, Washington, DC, steps off, gets in this thing called a super shuttle. I'm like, what's that? <laughs> and uh, the driver, as I recall, was kind of a hippie, stoner type of guy. And he said, oh, I can tell you've never been here before. I'm going to take you on a tour. <laughs> so he drove me into San Francisco in via Portola and over the hill that now I know is Twin Peaks and looks over the city. And it was one of those glorious days. And I thought, it's beautiful. You're also a novelist. I am. Thank this you is your first book? Yes. Upon This Rock is my first published novel. And... I use my full name, David Eugene Perry, for complete marketing purposes. As you said, I have my own PR firm after 36 years. And if you Google David Perry, you get an Irish oh, yeah. game developer. Yeah. There are quite so, a few, actually. There are, David Perry is a very common name. Yeah. When I lived in San Francisco, one day I got a call from someone and wanted to book me to play for a party, because that's how I was moonlighting. I played my way through college at a nightclub and singing. And uh, at some point in the conversation, I said, well, that doesn't sound like a piano song. He says, aren't you David Perry, the guitar player? I'm like, no, I'm David Perry, the piano player. So if you Google David Eugene Perry, which is my full name, I'm the only one you get. So that's why I use the whole name. And tell us a little bit about the novel. Well, it's a mystery thriller. It's set in a tiny little hilltop town in Italy called Orvieto, halfway between Rome and Florence. And I got the inspiration for it when my husband and I went there on sabbatical in 2014, following the death of our four best friends in a, a year period. It was a rough 
was a rough year. We needed a break. And I knew I was going to write something, but frankly, I thought I was going to write a book about ship history. Maritime history is one of my hobbies. But we arrived in this town on November 30th, 2014, and it turned out to be the fourth anniversary of a true but tragic event. A young deacon, candidate for the priesthood, Lucas Sedata, was one week away from ordination. And the Vatican intervened and denied him the priesthood on the rumor that he was gay. And he was so distraught, by all accounts, he was a good, beloved man, doing good works all around the town. He threw himself from the cliffs of Orvieto, committed suicide. Well, this, this story really, I don't want to say fascinated me, it angered me. At one point in my life, I wanted to be a priest. Uh, I also knew that it's very rare for the Vatican to get involved in just the ordination of a young priest. That's something that people below that pay grade get involved in. And I really thought there was something else going on and later found out indeed there was in true life. And uh, it gave me the idea for a fictional novel upon this rock, which turned into a mystery thriller. It, the theme, as people have asked me, is about refugees. Everyone in the book, in a sense, is a refugee. The two people from Orvieto or San Francisco, Lee and Adriano, who find themselves in this town are refugees from familial pain. The young deacon, the fictional one, Andrea, is a refugee from his family and the church. And everyone you meet in the book, including one of the Medici popes, whose backstory is told 500 years before the incidents in this book, he's a refugee. So when we were there that winter of 2014 and then summer of 2015, the refugee crisis in Italy was front page news everywhere. Thousands of people literally died every summer trying to escape from war-torn Libya crossing the Mediterranean, usually at the hands of uh, nefarious drug traffickers and human traffickers, just to get to Italy. And uh, you couldn't escape it. You would see some of the refugees in the streets of Orvieto selling little things or begging. And it, uh, it really gave a theme and a soul to my book based on this real life suicide. And how's it selling? It's selling really well. It's the best selling book my publisher, Pace Press, has ever had. Uh, I was very fortunate. I got some great early reviews, including the cover blurb from my old pal and colleague, Armistead Mop, and author of Tales of the City. He called it an elegant, twisty thriller. David Eugene Perry's Upon This Rock will do for Orvieto, Italy, what Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil uh, did for Savannah, Georgia. And uh, a, a fairly new review comes from a longtime Emmy Award-winning Hollywood reporter, Jan Wall, who oh, called yeah. it literally, she the said, lady. the hat lady. Yeah. She said, this book is fabulous. I can't wait for the movie. And wow. she has been casting it in her mind. And uh, indeed, my goal this whole year, now that it's on sale and doing very well, is to get it optioned for a film. So if anyone out there is in the <laughs> film industry, call me. This, this is... This is made for the movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Gay Da Vinci Code, and two of the characters are gay, but it's not a gay novel. Yeah. People ask me, is it a gay novel? I'm like, no, just two of the characters are gay. It's about a rich cast of characters, Italian, American, British, expat, Irish, who are in this little town during this period, and uh, none of them is who they appear to be. And I think it would make a great movie, or frankly, a Netflix series. So what's next for you? Are you going to write another book? Absolutely. I've already started the book. I, I, I have a great love for history, and I believe that preserving our history, whether it's LGBT-specific or not, is important. I lecture on maritime history. So that is something that I'm going to continue, my work promoting the Rainbow Honor Walk, lecturing about old ships. Um, 
but yes, writing. I had started the sequel, as it were, to Upon This Rock when COVID hit. And I don't know about you, but I didn't feel terribly creative during COVID. Uh, I was kind of gobsmacked. I have the plot in my brain, but by the end of COVID, I remember thinking, I don't want to write a book about COVID. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to read a book about COVID. That's something we all want to forget. I, yeah, so I pretty much decided I have started work on it. The plot takes place the year before COVID. So it's completely free of masks and all of that. And partly, partly that's selfish on my point. I just want to write the book and not worry about what I have to describe. And then it starts right about this period now as we're coming out of COVID. So the two main characters basically say, well, boy, that was a year. And then they remember the experience of this uh, murder. It's another murder mystery. And it takes place not in Italy this time. It takes place mainly aboard ship in a little town in Spain called Grasalema in Andalusia. And surprise, surprise, in Palm Springs. And where can we buy on this rock? pretty much anywhere. You can buy it at uh, any of your favorite bookstores. Barnes & Noble, Books, Inc. in San Francisco carries it. And if they don't carry it, they'll order it for you. You can also get it through my publisher, QuillDriverBooks.com. Pace Press is their fiction imprint. Or Amazon, Barnes & Noble's, Goodreads, and I even found out the other day, it's even available at Target.com. Wow. <laughs> and a special edition. Special With edition. a different ending, right? There you go. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My guest on this edition of the Public Record Podcast has been David Perry, CEO of David Perry & Associates, with offices in San Francisco and Palm Springs. For the Public Record, I'm Managing Editor Ken Allen. Thanks for listening.